G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. One interesting thing we're seeing, despite the rising rate environment, we are still seeing self-storage cap rates continue to compress. And I think the reason they continue to compress in spite of the rising rate environment is there's so much liquidity out there chasing the space that wants to be in the space. There's been a big rotation of capital from other asset classes into self-storage, especially as a result of COVID. Like a bunch of retail and hotel guys and hospitality guys are not doing those like they used to. They want to, they're flying to self-storage. So a lot of investor demand out there. Now, as cap rates continue to compress, at least they are recently, we'll see how that trend goes and interest rates go up. Eventually that's going to break. Eventually deals are not going to pencil anymore. You can't, you can't do the math on buying a deal at a five cap and having a 6% interest interest rate. You're gonna have negative leverage, negative cash flow, um, but we're not seeing that matriculate through the market yet, but it, just the math says it has to eventually. And again, I think the reason it's not yet is there, there's just so much liquidity chasing the space. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, the pleasure of speaking with Jacob Vanderslice. Now, Jacob is the principal at Van West Partners, a Denver-based real estate firm focusing on acquiring and managing self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the United States. Now, Van West has established track record with over $195 million in real estate assets under management, and Jacob and his partner's success is driven by a commitment to delivering an expertly executed, adaptable strategy with an institutional investment approach. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible knowledge, but enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Jacob. Welcome back to the show. Great intro, Reed. Thanks for uh, thanks for having us on. Good to see you again. Yeah, and we were saying for the listeners, the, we were both losing our minds. We, you know, as I'm saying that intro, I'm like, we've, I've definitely said that three times now. Like, we think we <laughs> we think this, this is the third time we're finally getting lucky uh, on getting you on the show and having you finally pushed out to the masses. I will say, after doing this for six or seven years. I've never had so much technical issues in the show that we had and this rescheduling. So, well, as, hopefully- we, as we discussed, you got your new MacBook in and you're, you're good to go now. No new problems. No, yep. no, no, no. Touch wood, right? Touch wood. So, mate, but with that being said, let's give a quick uh, overview of your background um, and how you started Van West Partners. Yeah, we've been investing in real estate full time since about 2006. We started off uh, in the single family space. We've done over over a thousand single family fix and flips all over the country, mainly in Denver, but a variety of markets. Um, and those were fun days. We would buy deals at the trustee sales with cashier's checks. We'd uh, get possession, renovate, sell. Um, we got into commercial real estate starting in about 13, did a number of adaptive reuse retail projects around Denver, basically repositioning old warehouses into multi-tenant experience-based uh, retail concepts like restaurants, breweries. Um, those were a lot of fun. And then we got into self-storage space in 2015, and we had studied it for a while. We liked its historic uh, recession resistance. It's scalable, repeatable. It's got durable income streams. And we started off with some ground up development projects here in Denver, and we expanded into the Midwest and the Milwaukee market in about 2016. And we kind of kept going from there. All of our deals and storage leading up to 2019 were single asset syndications. And we launched our first storage fund in uh, June of 19, closed that out in August of 20. Uh, we launched our second fund in January of 21, and we closed out in Q1 of uh, 22. And we're in the process of launching Fund 3 right now, as well as a development strategy in addition to Fund 3. So mainly focus on storage. We'll do opportunistic one-off deals as we find them outside storage. But about, I would say, 90, 95% of our bandwidth is uh, is focused on self-storage acquisitions and operations. Yeah, and I've had a few people on the show talk about self-storage. And, and kudos to, to your background. I think it's, it's incredible, you know, story started since 2006 and moving up through fix and flipping and just keep getting bigger and bigger. And actually, as a fellow operator, your your transition into doing funds is, is quite interesting for me. So maybe we'll ask a few questions about that. But but in and around the self-storage space today, uh, for those listeners out there, well, can you explain to listeners out there, how are you looking at supply, you know, Walk us through the numbers of, and I've had you know other people on the show talking about the number of square feet per capita or something in a, in, a, in a local radius. What does that look like for you in today's economy when you're going hunting deals across the country? Well, we're recording this this podcast on on May fifth, and uh, it's amazing how much the world has changed uh, in the last few months. Not not only last few months, but this week to a degree. I mean, as we sit here right now, the Dow is down eleven hundred points. Uh, the ten year Treasury is up to its highest level since twenty eighteen. It spiked a lot today. 
so we're in we're in uncharted territory here and obviously the threat of a pending recession so notwithstanding the turmoil in the markets we'll, we'll start high level one of the first things you look at in a potential self-storage acquisition is the supply ratio and that's the square feet per capita as you mentioned earlier nationally there's about seven or eight square feet per capita historically if you're over that number you're in a market that's oversupplied and if you're under that it's undersupplied uh, that rule of thumb is still a guiding principle but We've become we've we've seen supply ratios become a little 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 more of a flexible metric in the last couple of years than they've historically been. So, for example, in a market with really low rents, say the rents are eighty cents a foot versus two dollars a foot, and that's per square foot per month. That market can support more storage customers because of the price. So, you might have a market that's at thirteen square feet per capita, which, based on the numbers I mentioned earlier, seems like it's oversupplied. Yet, all the facilities are full. And that's because rates are so low that more consumers can afford to store as opposed to being in a market that's maybe $2 a foot. That's a much higher barrier uh, as far as the cost of storage. So supply ratios are something we look at pretty carefully. And then just normal nuts and bolts, real estate fundamentals, population growth, location. We don't track incomes as much in storage. We mainly look at density and rooftops. We want our deals to be in, in areas with lots, lots of infill um, residential housing, multifamily, single family. Uh, we generally shy away from deals that are out in rural locations just because the supply ratios get really thrown off if somebody builds a new facility. So yeah, those are really the themes, uh, supply ratios and just uh, good markets and good locations. It's interesting you mentioned um, incomes because one of the big things I look at uh, when I'm uh, assessing a multifamily deal, I actually just had a webinar last night for, for a new deal I'm, I'm chasing. And I really look at the sort of fifty to $70,000 household income, right? Because that can then back into, you know, we, we talk in, in multifamily, the, the times, the third of your income can go towards rent, a third divided by, you know, $55,000 a year roughly gets you to about 1500 bucks. And if you're buying at $1,000 in place, you know, effective rents, you've got, you know, 50% growth margin. Um, so it's really, it really does matter, you know, the, the local household median income. It, why doesn't it matter for self-storage as much? I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it matters less. Um, there's some theories out there that suggest that uh, 2% of AMI uh, can be self-storage rent in a given market. We've seen markets that are a lot less than that. Uh, with low occupancies, and we'd see markets that are higher than that as a percentage of AMI uh, that have higher occupancies. So there's a correlation with all these data points. It's just kind of interpolating them, but I don't think it's nearly as important as workforce housing. And self-storage customers are a lot more to a degree transitory than multifamily customers or tenants. They're not going to, some of our customers stay for years, but a lot of people stay there for six months and uh, they're not as price conscious if they're only staying there for six months. I'll say most of our customers that think they're going to be there for a short amount of time end up storing for longer than they expect. It kind of becomes out of sight, out of mind. It auto drafts on their credit card or their bank account every month. They don't want to deal with moving their stuff. So yeah, it's a little more of a transitory customer base than multifamily. No, it's why maybe it's sensitive to uh, to incomes. Right, right. And what what's the type? Typically, what are you looking for from an occupancy point of view? Like you know, is eighty like I know when I take over a deal, it's eighty percent in multifamily. That's really bad, but I don't know if that's bad for self storage, given that it's a lower rent, you know, all in rent for per month. Yeah, we generally target ninety percent physical occupancy uh, as we as we target stabilizing our properties. And self storage, if you're if you're too full, you're not doing a good job with your revenue management. And said otherwise, if you're too full, it means your rates are too low. 
if you're if you're 99 percent, you're not a hero you're you're a bad operator you need to increase rates to drive down occupancy a little bit in the self-storage business churn is not a bad thing meaning customers constantly moving in and moving out every time a new customer moves in it's a chance to sell them some ancillary revenue streams like boxes and tape tenant insurance one-time administrative fee to move in and it's also an opportunity to increase your street rates as your occupancy goes up vacancy goes down, you can start pushing those $100 units to $110 because you have more demand. But really the sweet spot in self-storage is around 90. Right, interesting. And that's, that's, that's a stabilized, right? So you look, to, you, yep. you'll, you'll look to either bring it up or push it down depending on the deal itself, correct? Yeah, and, and we make distinctions between physical occupancy, which is the ratio of units that are actually occupied and economic occupancy. So you might buy a deal at 98% at acquisition and think, well, why are you buying this? Where's the meat on the bone? Well, rates are too low. And when you mark the mark, when you mark the rates to market, your economic occupancy might be 70%. So you've got 30% of room to get those rents up and you might drive down occupancy, but you'll still have a net increase in revenue. So for example, in Q1, in both of our fund portfolios, we had a we had a nominal loss in occupancy, but we also had a meaningful gain in revenue because of rate increases. So it's more of a revenue management game, and we we are we care more about NOI and top line revenue than we care about physical occupancy. Uh, physical is very important, obviously. If you're if you're empty, you don't have any revenue. Um, but we, we're trying to balance those different factors uh, every day in our operational platform. Well, where you were going with that is really interesting because I do like, it's the same thing in multifamilies. When you're comparing asset classes to asset classes, if something is too full in multifamily, to your point, they're not doing a good job um, of, of maintaining the revenue stream. And I like how you look at it. And it's, I'm probably going to take that and use that, that snippet of when you have churn, churn's not a bad thing because you get to then you know, add in the washer, at least on our side of the coin, it's add in the washer dryer, add in the, the you know, the trash uh, trash valet, add in the parking fees where the person before that may not have been paying that stuff. So having churn on the multifamily side is good as well. I'm just trying to compare the two for, for the listeners who, you know, this shows a lot about multifamily, having some self-storage and, and understanding the correlation between the two is important. Um, but it also goes back to cash flow management. Like these are, these are, these are cash flowing deals, you're trying to increase revenue any way you can, and your widget just happens to be a shed rather than a bed, right? So we uh, we're just sort of slightly different spaces, but but fundamentally the the economic drivers are the same and the same. You're trying to look at to, to increase that revenue in the green room before we press record here. We talked to, we spoke a lot about, and you mentioned earlier the change that's happened in the last you know since the beginning of the year. What are you seeing right now in terms of are your pencils are down? Are you still actively looking? What's your thesis at this point in time? Yeah, we, we have a fair amount of deals in the pipeline. We have uh, anywhere from uh, income producing deals to certificate of occupancy acquisitions, to lease ups, to ground up development projects. So we're, we're still on the market and we are still actively sourcing acquisitions. The environment though is changing by the day. Um, a couple of things we're seeing right now that are of concern. One interesting thing we're seeing, despite the rising rate environment, we are still seeing self-storage cap rates continue to compress. And I think the reason they continue to compress in spite of the rising rate environment is there's so much liquidity out there chasing the space that wants to be in the space. There's been a big rotation of capital from other asset classes into self-storage, especially as a result of COVID. Like a bunch of retail and hotel guys and hospitality guys are not doing those like they used to. 
they want to, they're flying to self-storage. So a lot of investor demand out there. Now, as cap rates continue to compress, at least they are recently, we'll see how that trend goes and interest rates go up. Eventually that's going to break. Eventually deals are not going to pencil anymore. You can't, you can't do the math on buying a deal at a five cap and having a 6% interest, interest rate. You're going to have negative leverage, negative cash flow, um, but we're not seeing that matriculate through the market yet. But it, just the math says it has to eventually. And again, I think the reason it's not yet is there, there's just so much liquidity chasing the space. The rising rate environment is something we're watching very carefully. And all of us in the real estate investment space, we are all going to be eventually at the mercy of a debt maturity, right? If you don't sell before your debt matures, we're all going to have to refinance, whether that's in three years, five years, or 10, whatever it might be, debt will mature at some point. So operators who are making really aggressive revenue growth assumptions, they're playing IRR games with a cash out refi on year two, returning capital, showing that increased IRR, and then showing a low exit cap rate on year three or four. I think there's going to be some pain that's going to come in the market um, on folks that finance their deals with bridge debt uh, with really aggressive assumptions. And I, I, was, um, I was on a self-storage mastermind call yesterday with guys from Public, Heitman, Reliant, a uh, bunch of shops out there. And we asked ourselves, are, are operators lying to themselves and their models? And why, why, when we offer on a stretch price $25 million, how does that deal trade for $32 million a couple months later? Like, how is that happening? And the question that was asked was, is it aggressive modeling or is it a lower cost of capital? And our conclusion was that it's aggressive modeling. Um, there's guys out there with really low cost of capital, but no matter how low your cost of capital is, if you're financing this with debt, you're still at the mercy of the debt markets. And I think people just continue to put very aggressive assumptions into their models. And that's gonna be uh, interesting to see how that works its way through the system in the coming months and years. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. You mentioned two things there that I think, just for the listeners to reiterate, um, refinance in years two or you, at some point throughout, throughout the whole to juice the IRR. I know from, an, I've been operator for eight years now, um, had many successful exits. I've always been taught never, ever, ever have a refi in your model. If you're having a refi in your model to get to a certain number, it is just way too aggressive. But the one thing I want, do want to pick up on, and that just to close that loop on that one, you mentioned low cap rates. You know, I, I would be, I'm buying deals where my interest rates have always been a little bit higher or, you know, at par with my cap rates or, or maybe slightly negative because the in-place rent is so low and given environments which we have recently, I don't know if you're seeing this in the self-storage space, but I'm seeing at least in the multifamily space where my, you know, average 
rent for a two bedroom historically when i first started looking in texas and stuff like that was maybe 850 and that's back in 2014 15 over you know four or five year period it grew to a thousand bucks in last you know and within the last couple of years that's grown to you know fourteen hundred dollars in a very short period of time so there's still in my opinion in growing sub markets where you can find low in place rents thus your low income your cap in but you do have that you know to how we actually can achieve a higher market rate. Are you seeing that in the self-storage back to your, uh, you're talking about you know, 80 cents a square foot. And so that, thus your cap rate would be a lot lower because you know you could get $1.50 a square foot um, once you stabilize. Yeah, and what I should have said when I mentioned cap rates, it's, it's you, you have to really put context when you're talking about I'm buying at whatever cap rate. Right. Uh, we're buying deals at negative cap rates, right? <laughs> but they don't have any occupancy. They lose money in the first year or two of operations because there's not enough revenue to pay the expenses. And that's by design. When I was referencing paying very low cap rates for deals, I was talking about deals without a lot of value creation, without a lot of meat left on the bone. Yep. You and I might do, buy a deal at a two or three cap, uh, but we're going to stabilize it to a six or seven within some number of years. Right. And um, uh, the, the, I mean, the fundamentals are there to get there. But um, when you're buying a deal at a four or five cap without a lot of room for growth, those are going to be the cap rates are going to be increasing, I think, very quickly, just given the cost of capital increase on the yeah, debt no, side. That's completely agree. And that's the fundamentals of any real estate investment deal, whether you're doing single families or self-storages, you have to be adding value and forcing that appreciation, not rely upon the market, which is market appreciation. We've spoken a lot about that on here on this show. So how are you then changing your underwriting these days? In terms of the sofa curve, um, you know, changing you know, rates going up. What are you doing differently today than what you're doing, say, six months ago? Well, our our going in interest rates, especially on deals that we've rate locked, they, they haven't gone up uh, catastrophically. They've increased, but nothing nothing that's untenable. Um, the main thing that we're scratching our heads about is if we're buying a deal on a three year bridge loan, what are we underwriting to on our financing assumptions when it when it comes time to take it out? Mm-hmm. And, the answer is whatever we choose, we're going to be wrong, right? The rates are going to be higher or lower than whatever we pick. Um, but we've been stressing our models up to a 6% interest rate and making sure they still they still work. Now, when I say they might still work at a 6, what are your NOI assumptions when it comes time to refi, right? Uh, a 6% rate might work if you hit your NOI growth targets. If you miss those, a 6% rate might crush you. So generally, we're being increasingly conservative on our takeout rate assumptions. And um, I think that this this market environment, the rising rate environment is going to be sustained for this year. And I'm hoping that once the government tamps down inflation, that's going to return to more of a normal state. Uh, Not that the last few years have been normal, but uh, a lower rate environment. I think the government's mainly focused on, hey, we're going to risk causing a recession here in exchange for tempering inflation. Yep. Yep. That's their main focus right now. And obviously the, the biggest tool in the toolbox to do that is uh, is increasing the Fed rates. Yep. No, and we, I've spoken a lot about this to many folks over the last little while. You know, um, my, 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 my Aussie-isms in me, but, you know, I keep going back to, to 2008, right? That was an American problem. Today, it's a, it's a worldwide problem. We're all at the same starting blocks. Everyone's got the one lever, you know, two levers really, reduce liquidity or, or interest, interest rates increase. I think it's going to be really interesting with the combination of reduced supply chain and lack of labor participation since COVID. There's this like a combination and just 
the, the overall fatigue that everyone has of <laughs> just the fatigue, you know, we, we don't need to get into it, uh, but, but the fatigue of COVID, the fatigue of, you know, inflation, the fatigue of, I've got a bloody recession. Like it's just, people are going to get sick, fed up with it. So I'm interested to see when they keep turning these knobs and not just here in the States, but, you know, in Australia, in Europe, in, in Canada, in, in Japan, in Asia, you know, how do you solve the other issues that are affecting some of the inflationary inf- uh, environments that we face ourselves in, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine and all that sort of stuff. And that's going to be, I, I, I sort of have this picture in my head of a cartoon, like jamming a lever and nothing happening, <laughs> you know? And yep. I, I, I just, that's the only other wrinkle to that, that I don't know what's going to happen because given the so much weirdness has gone on wars, COVID inflation, all the rest of it. Yeah, uncharted territory, but I will continue to believe, and a lot of economists believe this either in an inflation as well, um, in an inflationary environment, controlling hard assets that produce cash flow is a good thesis. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what you're doing too. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, so so where are you focused mainly you know, in the next 12 months? You said you got stuff in the pipeline. You, you're being a little bit more, you're being more conservative. You're looking, you're stressing it. You're looking at sensitivity tables. You're probably looking at what it looks like over a five-year hold rather than a shorter year hold? Like what, what other things are you doing to, to prepare for a softening slash recession? Well, a lot, of, um, a lot of real estate investors use this term, but I think your, your main line of defense is creating a mode of cash flow. And that cash, that cash flow mode, that's always our target on every deal we do is that, that mode of cash flow. And whether the deal is producing cash flow today or it's not, it's still our target in the end. And cash flow is how you get through uncertain times. The value of your properties can go down, cap rates can increase. As long as you're not staring a a major debt maturity in the face in the midst of a meltdown, you can survive if you can hang on. And the trick to hanging on is cash flow. So that's the main thesis and focus within our self-storage practice and investing business uh, is just creating recurring durable revenue streams that will sustain uh, a softening. And on a more granular level, we stress our portfolio with occupancy loss, with higher than forecasted negative net rentals, make sure we still have a good debt coverage ratio. And um, I think a lot of things would have to go wrong before we're in a position where we can't make our mortgage payments, right? There's a, there's a lot of fat baked in, but you never know how bad this could get. Um, every investment's got an element of risk to it. Uh, but what I like about real estate is it's not gonna go up 35% a day, but it's not gonna go down 35% a day like Netflix did a couple of weeks ago. And right. like various stocks right now are doing as we speak. Um, so yeah, that, that cash flow mode is our, our main line of defense in uncertain times. And is this the pitch you're using for investors who are, who are ultimately probably picking up the phone and giving you a call and saying, Jacob, what's going on with my portfolio? Uh, and having to sort of educate them a little bit more about the differences between physical assets and paper stocks. Well, we, we approach our capital raising as I'm sure you do, uh, in a very educational way. Um, it's more of, this is what we're doing. This is the asset class. Uh, we don't say, Hey, give us your money right now, or the deal's going to close. Um, so the theme that I'm getting from a lot of our investors right now is really what we're discussing during this conversation is the interest rate environment and the cap rate environment. And I had one guy ask me, this guy's salty. He's been around for a long time. He just sold a massive rental portfolio that he's owned for 10 years in Florida. He's made a lot of money. And he asked me a, a question that um, I didn't have a good answer to. And his question was, what do you guys do if you're financing a deal with a five-year loan, your debt's about to mature, and the debt markets are totally seized up, and you can't source new debt? 
And that's a tough question, right? Um, I don't know what the answer is to that. And I, I guess my the best response I had was, well, if that happens, we might have bigger problems in the world than, our, than, than refinancing our debt out of the storage facility. Uh, right. You know, we, we could be in the back of our trucks with a with a 50 cow mounted uh, trying to trying to source jugs of water and gassing. <laughs> um, but, you know, that happened in 2008. Right. It wasn't it was a big meltdown, but you know there wasn't blood in the streets, literally. Um, but that's that's what people are thinking about these days is just how uncertain the future is and navigating that and trying to be defensible. Yep. I think the, the other thing to add to that is, you know, we talk about liquidity and, 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 and debt markets drying up, which is an effect of that. But everyone looks at 2008, have a lot of scars from 2008. You also have to remember what triggered that through bad lending practices. And that, you know, permeated, percolated around the world. I think today you look at the lending practices and the, you know, the debt coverage ratios and the debt yields and all that sort of stuff and the qualifications. And we're just not in, we're not in that same space, at least from what I'm reading. I'm not, an, I'm not an economist, but um, that, the, 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 but it does mean we can't be affected in another way that we haven't even seen. Like we didn't even think about COVID could, could, could affect us in the way it has, you know, from walls or whatever. So it's interesting, but Hopefully, the fundamentals—not hopefully—the fundamentals of real estate, cash flowing real estate, um, do uh, are recession proof, you know, recession proof, and keep cash flowing through those bad times. It will be interesting um, to to see maturities. Uh, I know, and you've been around long enough as, as I have that even in two thousand and fourteen and thirteen and fifteen. Everyone thought, oh, you know, these short-term loans are coming to an end and there's going to be crisis on the streets. I remember this. They've said that for years. <laughs> you probably said, you know, like, so I think you've been around, you know, a little bit more gray hair than I do, but I, I, it's, it's maybe the same spooky thing that everyone, you know, thinks about and it, it, it hasn't, knock on what hasn't come true yet. I don't know if, there's, if that's really a question. It's more of a statement, but I, I've heard this same line for the last 10 years as well, you know, short-term rates, short-term rates, short, short-term, it's going to come to a maturity. You're going to be screwed when you can't get, you know, can't get yourself out of it. There's always a doomsday story. And one big concern uh, where we are today is this era of expansion has lasted a very long time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The wheels come on the, off the bus in 08, the market began recovering to a degree in 09 and 10. And from there just kind of kept going and time eventually is going to temper that. Yep. And the question is what catalyst is going to cause that? Well, we had a pandemic that hurt hospitality, it hurt retail and employment went up. Um, but generally uh, real estate values, instead of going down, they all went up, they all went way up. Look at the residential space right now, especially the single family residential space. It, it is more on fire and irrational in our Denver market than it was in even Q4 of last year, exponentially more so. And we talked about fundamentals and normal underwriting, figuring out what a deal is worth by looking at comparable uh, sales, you know, price per square foot, bed bath count, finishes, lot size. Those fundamentals have been uncoupled uh, in, in Q1 going into Q2. People are bidding on properties that are, they are not worth what they're paying. Um, and 20% appreciation year on year is not sustainable. Uh, you can't continue that. You can't keep just 20, 20, you just, you can't do it. Eventually it becomes even more irrational. And I don't, I just don't know what that, uh, that mechanism is going to be that's going to cause the, the market to soften, the decline in values. To your point earlier on debt, contrary to 2008, lenders actually verify you can pay the debt back today. And they were doing that 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago. 
So, yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting. And we all have to be well positioned to not only defend against it, but uh, potentially capitalize on any pain the market uh, might produce. Yep. yep. And the same story is happening in Australia. I talked to, talk to investors back there. I talked to investors in England. It's rising, you know, rising interest rates. So rising house costs, hard to get into the market coupled with, you know, and, and unprecedented growth in rates and, and values. And it was just in Canada last week when he's with a real estate buddy of mine. He's, he is, uh, he buys up there. Same, same exact thing in Vancouver going through the route. Like it's just insane what they're paying for condos up there. Um, so it's, it's, if it does, something does happen, it's going to be massive blood, not only here, but uh, around the globe. So um yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, mate, look, at the end of every show, we'd like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? I'm all set. Mate, what is the uh, daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? So I do, um, not every day, but I do a lot of journaling. It's kind of a brain dump. Um, I'll journal when I'm like 15 minutes between one call to the next. It's not enough time to create, to, to accomplish a, a big task. So I'll just kind of brain dump on what's going on. Um, it's kind of therapeutic and it's cool to look back like a year later and see what you were thinking about, what you were working on, where your mental state was. Another thing I try to do, which I don't always accomplish, is get my most undesirable tasks out of the way in the morning. Just go address that big task you have to do that's painful, a bunch of analysis you might have to do or a report you have to write up. Those are two things that I found uh, very helpful and you know, to a degree therapeutic. Awesome. Uh, question number two is, uh, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? There's been a number of them. I'll, I'll name two. One guy was, um, uh, he's, a, he's a good family friend. He's out of San Francisco. He, he runs unsuccessfully against Nancy Pelosi every year for Congress or every two years. And I remember I was skiing with him back in like 2004 and he was on his Windows mobile phone with like a stylus and he was closing a real estate deal on the chairlift. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I want to be this guy. I want to be in real estate. I want to do real estate. So he was kind of the catalyst that got me interested in it. Uh, but the other big influence, uh, of course, is my wife. She, um, my income, just like yours, is very lumpy wheel, right? It's uh, some some quarters you're, you'll have a liquidity event, but you have to go co-invest into your next deal. And she's kind of the rock that's uh, kept the family cash flow up uh, with that strong that strong bank W two. And uh, she's got an entrepreneurial uh, spirit as well, but she's um, you know made a lot of sacrifices to allow me to do what I do. That's awesome. Yeah, having a good partner in life is uh, really really important. Uh, question number three is: What's the most influential tool in your business? Could be a physical tool like a phone, a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. Yeah, only two. Um, one of them is Slack. All of our intercompany communications are on Slack. We have different channels for different things. It's hugely helpful. It eliminates email traffic. The only thing I don't like about it is you can't really uh, easily flag something or archive something and deal with later. Um, it's more of like a texting format. So we use a lot of Slack. Um, our entire operations team around the country is on Slack, our, our Denver office. That's been a really useful tool. And the second thing we use that's been really useful is uh, our CRM called HubSpot. Mm-hmm. It does all of our investor updates, investor marketing emails. Uh, we have a really handy little call scheduling link in there that integrates with the CRM, with like a customized branded web page, like talk with Van West, their logo on it. So yeah, those are kind of two that come to mind off the top of my head, HubSpot and um, Slack. Are yeah, two great love, love, love those things. It's such, such more increased your efficiencies uh, across multiple markets, across multiple team members. So awesome stuff. Um, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? 
value wise, I, I would, I guess I'll answer the, the, the question with experience. And I guess the most valuable experiences I've had are my failures. Mm. Uh, I, I remember the failures like they were yesterday and the home runs are just so easily forgotten. You can chalk it up to luck. You can chalk it up to market timing, but just remembering what it was like to be going through 2008. Um, I think about that almost every day and how I apply that to our investing thesis and defensibility today. Um, I also learned uh, don't build a single family home out of shipping containers. Uh, that's, that's all, that's all I learned. Just, um, you know, just, just don't do it. Um, so that's another little takeaway there. Awesome. awesome stuff, mate. Well, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Yeah, folks can go to our website, uh, vanwestpartners.com. They can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. I just want to repeat some of the stuff that I took away from today's show. I really liked your in-depth you know, breakdown and thank you for that, for talking about how you're looking at vacancies, how you're looking at the supply rate for self-storage, how you're looking at the different types of cap rates in terms of adding value and how that correlates to your um, investment thesis, not only, but also to your interest rate your variability over the, the life of the loan uh, and the life of the deal. Um, then also you know, we dive deep, dove deep into the, the the economy and what you know what, what could be coming around the corner. We don't know. We all don't have a crystal ball and we're just trying to be active in the current and market situations. Uh, mate, but did I leave anything out? I don't think so. Yeah, awesome good summary. Stuff. Awesome stuff, man. Well, look, I want to thank you again for taking some time out of the day. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Good to see you, Reid. Same with you. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with an incredible episode from Jacob. Please remember to head over to vanwestpartners.com to check him out. Uh, Jacob is also all over LinkedIn, so check him out over there as well. I want to thank you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Hold up. 